0: Good morning, thank you for uh, your warm welcome, it's great to uh, be here this morning and a privilege to open God's word uh, with all of you. As Charlie has mentioned, I'm the pastor at Hertford Street Baptist Church, that's in Upper Mount Gravatt, Uh, Daryl is over there at the moment, I told him uh, during the week that he got a good deal because I got to preach twice, he got to preach once, I start at 8.30, he starts... Now, I think, so uh, he's got a good deal, but either way, it's really good to gather around God's word. How about we pray? Father God, we've just been reminded that you are the God who saves. You're the God who saves uh, through uh, your saving work as Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and rose again victorious. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as followers of Jesus, we pray that you'd remind us and encourage us and challenge us that you are the God who saves. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to live for you and proclaim Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, all followers of Jesus would agree that God can save anyone with just heard of that from Charlie through the video that he can work the impossible and that no one is beyond God's reach. But I think realistically all of us have a list of people that we would be genuinely surprised if they became a Christian. Maybe it's a family member, the one who hates religion, who wants nothing to do with the church. Maybe it's that coworker who laughs at Christian beliefs, mocks Christians during lunchtime. Maybe it's that celebrity, that sports person, that socialite, that musician or actor who we look and we think, yeah, that, that will never happen. But if we really do believe that God can save anyone, how would you feel if you hypothetically heard Richard Dawkins? the most famous atheist, if he somehow came to Jesus? Or Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, ruling with power and aggression, now charged with war crimes from the ICC. What if he somehow came to Christ? Think of someone for yourself, that you'd be genuinely shocked if they announced that they turned to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. I think for all of us, there's a sense that we'd find it hard to believe if a certain person came to Jesus. But what does it mean if you really believe that God can save anyone? Can he really work the impossible? And is no one really beyond God's reach? Well, this morning, we come to the most unlikely conversion story in the Bible. Leading up to Acts chapter 8, if you have a flick, uh, we see a build-up of persecution against followers of Jesus. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death, and the one in charge, Saul, he's giving his approval at the end as Stephen died for his faith in Jesus. You see, Saul was an enemy of the early church, and chapter 8 begins with Saul ravaging the early church, destroying the early church. He was out to capture, imprison, and even kill those who believed in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. I think he's the kind of guy that you'd go, can God really work salvation in him? Can he really work that impossible? Is he beyond God's reach? And this guy Saul, or the Apostle Paul, as we later know him, He doesn't just put his trust in Jesus here. God uses Saul as a chosen instrument in the early church, reaching Gentiles, planting churches, training leaders, the human author of 13 letters that are part of our Bible. You see, Saul is the unlikely convert. He's far from God, an enemy of the gospel. And he's moved to being used mightily by God in the spread of the gospel. And as we look at this section today, I think it's quite easy to understand. Charlie's already uh, read that passage. So we're going to motor through the passage quickly. But as we go through the passage, uh, we need to remember that it's not given to us as a pattern of conversion. It's not for us to dissect each step and to replicate it today. It's a snapshot of God's unstoppable mission in action. It's written by Luke, the historian, for us to go, wow. Wow, God is at work. This is our God. It's written to encourage and to challenge us to continue being God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. If you have your Bibles, if you can follow, we begin meeting Saul in chapter nine, verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Here's Saul and his hatred of this Jesus group is real. He's totally against These early believers, he wants to wipe away this group to hurt them and to get rid of them. Even to the point of getting official formal permission to seek them out and to throw them in jail. And it's not just let's go to the suburb next door and drag out these believers. Saul's going from Jerusalem to Damascus. That's like going from here to Bundaberg on foot or on horseback with the sole purpose of persecuting followers of Jesus. You see, Saul really is the unlikely convert. It's only God who can hatch a work, a plan like this. And that's what we see in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. You see, a light flashes from heaven that signifying the brightness of the glory of God appearing just like in the burning bush to Moses or Mount Sinai. And this glory is so overwhelming that Saul falls to the ground and he hears this voice. It's the voice of God. But unlike in the Old Testament, here Saul hears the voice of the one he's persecuting, the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Jesus, the divine Son of God. Now we should remember here that Saul, he wasn't just a blood hungry killer, he was a devout Jew. A follower of Yahweh, of God, he knew his Old Testament, but he thought this Jesus group was just some rebellious breakaway uprising. But here, Saul's confronted with the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus appears in all his godness, divinity, and glory, and Jesus shows Saul that this new movement, the way, These followers of Jesus that Saul was persecuted, persecuting, that they got it right about Jesus, that they got it right about God and Israel and the promises of old. Saul, he meets the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory. Verse six, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. We don't know if Saul, he got it straight away if the penny dropped immediately about jesus or if it took the extra three days but jesus gives saul some instructions the experience leaves him blinded probably from seeing the glory of god and saul follows these instructions bringing him to damascus and not to persecute the believers but obeying the words of the risen lord we're going to keep motoring through the passage, and then we'll draw some applications at the end. And as we come to the second section, we meet a new person, a follower of Jesus named Ananias. And Ananias, he's no one special. He's not one of the apostles. He's not a church leader. But note as we continue here, God uses faithful Ordinary followers of Jesus in his conversion and kingdom work. And God still works like this today. You might not be a Paul or a Peter or a Timothy, but God uses faithful, ordinary disciples as instruments in reaching the lost, building his church, and furthering his mission. Verse 10. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Put yourself in the shoes of Ananias for a moment. Jesus appears to him in a vision, gives him detailed directions this street, this house, this man, not just any man, but this guy that's trying to put you in jail. All of this shows that Jesus is the mastermind behind Saul's conversion. The Lord Jesus, he's the one in control. He's making the moves, he's working behind the scenes. And even in our evangelistic efforts today, we can know and trust that the Lord Jesus is the mastermind. He's the one at work in people's hearts and lives. And Jesus calms Ananias' fears in verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Here Jesus reveals his plans for Saul. He's not just any old convert. But Jesus has sovereignly chosen Saul, this guy, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, so far in Acts, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Tik, that's all been reached but the ends of the earth to the Gentiles, to kings. Saul has a special role in being God's instrument for this to happen. Saul, the persecutor, would become the one persecuted for the sake of Jesus and his good news. Verse 17, we see Ananias and Saul finally cross paths in obedience. Then Ananias went to the house If we're not sure how Saul responds to the risen Lord Jesus, we see it here. He's welcomed into the fellowship of those believing in Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. His blindness is healed. All of these things pointing to his conversion. His new life in Jesus blind, but now he sees. There's a debate here in Christian circles Was Paul converted, or was this just his commission? Well, I think it's both, because while we see Saul's future role spelled out here, which is his commissioning, everything in this narrative points to Paul's conversion. He encounters the risen Lord Jesus, the penny drops, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, his blindness is healed, he's baptized all pointing to the fact that he's been saved in Jesus' name. As we keep going, I uh, put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. He was on this road to Damascus to persecute Christians. But then in a matter of days, he was a Christian himself. If you were Saul, how would you feel? What would you be doing? Well, I think I'd be wanting to retreat, to have some time and space, to let the magnitude of that complete 180 change sink in, to figure out the details of what I believe, or to hide away from my old friends who are now my enemies who probably want to kill me. Well, as we read the last part of today's passage, Saul, he doesn't do any of that. As bold as he was in persecuting believers, he's now bold in proclaiming his newfound understanding of Jesus Christ to all. Have a look at the end of verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember Saul, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious elite. He was probably a rabbi. He was learned in scriptures, and he knew all the promises of old. And now the penny had dropped in who all those promises pointed to, Jesus. And this is exactly what Saul proclaims. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, both amazing and confusing or baffling the crowds at the same time. And we see Saul now on the opposite side of persecution. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. You see, Christ is proclaimed. The Jews try to kill Saul, And Saul escapes. And the same thing happens again three years later as Saul enters Jerusalem in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers heard of this, they took him down to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. Here we see the same pattern again. Saul proclaims Christ. He joins the apostles for the first time. He's introduced by his friend Barnabas. And the Jews, the same Jews who killed Stephen, they try to kill Saul too. And Saul escapes. You see, Saul encounters Jesus. The penny drops He's saved, he joins the church, the community of Christ, and he immediately proclaims the name of Jesus to others. What a change. What a change from the beginning of the chapter as Saul set out to persecute those who believe in Jesus. And we finish with a summary verse. We get a few of these in the book of Acts. The last one was in chapter 6, verse 7. And since then, it's been persecution, Stephen's death, people coming to Jesus, and then today's passage. So how's the early church going at this point? Are people leaving the movement because of this persecution? Is there unrest? Is there fear of suffering after Stephen's death? Well, this is how Luke summarizes it. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Even as the early church was facing its first wave of persecution, the church had peace, it was being strengthened. It was growing in spiritual maturity. They were walking in fear, not of suffering, but of the Lord. They were encouraged, not by their physical surrounds, even amidst persecution. They were encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the church was growing numerically. It was getting bigger. People were hearing Christ's declared and proclaimed, and deciding to put their trust in Jesus. So we've sped through today's passage. We've seen the unlikely convert, Saul, the persecutor to proclaimer, the enemy of God to instrument of God, against Jesus to following Jesus. Now we're going to spend a bit of time looking at what God wants us to know today in light of all of this. Especially in response to your church vision this year, the power of presence, and in response to your theme in this series, being God's chosen instruments. We're going to spend some time teasing out four things I think God wants us to know today from Acts chapter 9. And the first thing, God is sovereignly and powerfully working for the spread of the gospel. This is the main thing in today's passage. It's not a pattern of conversion. It's about the good news of Jesus powerfully spreading. In today's passage, we see God's hand at work sovereignly, powerfully, even amidst persecution, even in an enemy of jesus someone who describes himself as the worst of all sinners for the purpose of spreading the good news of life in jesus to the ends of the earth and you know this is the same god who's working today sovereignly powerfully even amidst all that's happening and all we think might be happening. And he's working for the purpose of spreading the good news of life in Jesus and saving people from death to life in Christ. God wants us to know that he is sovereignly and powerfully working for the spread of the gospel today. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Are you confident on this? Does this shape your evangelistic efforts? Imagine if this shaped your thinking. If you had an expectation that God is working in all your efforts to share Jesus, how would your outlook change? Well, for me, I think that I would be more confident in talking to people about Jesus. I'd be confident that God is working, whether my efforts go well or even go badly. I'd be more bold in asking people what they thought about God and Jesus. I wouldn't chicken out. I wouldn't be worried as much about my reputation or saying the wrong thing. I wouldn't be reaching for reasons and excuses to, shop, to stop sharing the gospel. You see, God is sovereignly and powerfully working for the purpose of the gospel spreading, the good news of life in Jesus. Let this be the foundation. Let this give us confidence, boldness, and even expectation as opportunities to point people to Jesus come. Second truth from this passage is that God can save anyone. It's no exaggeration that Saul is the unlikely convert. He's an enemy of God, out to harm and even kill followers of Jesus. Yet in God's gracious and powerful work, Saul puts his trust in Jesus and gives his life to the cause of his kingdom growing. It's a testament that God really can save anyone, those far from God, those with hearts set against God, those who we even label out of God's reach. And if you're a believer today, You know this by experience, because in a sense we're all unlikely converts, just like Saul. We were all sinners, far from God on our own, deserving death because of our rejection of God, but we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We are all unlikely converts. You see, Acts chapter 9 reminds us that God is gracious. That he does work powerfully, mysteriously, and miraculously in people's lives. And while we might not expect God to save everyone, that not everyone will come to Jesus, we can trust that God is able to, and God is powerful to, work salvation in Jesus to anyone. Whether it's a family member, a friend, a workmate, your neighbour, or someone you bump into down at the shops. And this should cause us to pray with confidence for those lost without Jesus, to witness with expectation that God can and is working, and to never give up hope that someone is outside of God's reach. Maybe you're here and you're listening today and you feel like you're that one who's outside of God's reach. Well, this passage shows us that God can save anyone. He can save you. No matter how bad you think you are or how outside of God's reach you think you are, all you need to do is to trust in Jesus to accept his free gift of salvation and to live for him as your Lord and Saviour. Third thing God wants us to know today is that the church is at the heart of God's mission. It's a passing point, it's a quick point, but I think it's something that we need to hear today. The church pops up in key moments in Acts chapter 9. Firstly, Jesus, he identifies himself as the church. Paul, Saul is persecuting the early church. But note in verse 4, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Suddenly, when Saul is saved, he's welcomed not just by one person, one individual, but he's welcomed into the church fellowship in verse 17. And finally, the focus at the end of this section, it's not on Saul. It's with the church growing in verse 31. You see, the church is at the heart of God's mission. And that means as we think about evangelism, sharing Jesus to our world, all of that happens not apart from the church. Mission happens in the context of the church. You can't give up on the church You can't go rogue from the church. Believers aren't supposed to do it alone. And too many in today's Western world try to do Christianity apart from the church, whether it's missions, evangelism, discipleship, whatever it is, when the church is at the heart of God's mission. We can demonstrate this by sharing about your evangelistic efforts to others at church. Even share your failures and struggles. We can do this by enthusiastically inviting people to church outreach events like Alpha. Make sure you talk to non-believers who come to those church events. Don't ignore them and assume that someone else is going to talk to them. Welcome new believers into the church community. If you see someone at morning tea and you don't know them, welcome them in and let them connect with you and celebrate good news stories in the life of the church. Don't keep them to yourself. The church is at the heart of God's mission. That's why at Hertford Street Baptist, we've been going through our mission, values, and vision statements and our vision statement this year is a church on mission. God has called not just individuals, not just pastors, not just the evangelists and the keen ones, but all of us as a body of Christ to be on mission for him. And I think it's a, mission, a vision that every local church should strive towards. The church is at the heart of God's mission. Fourth and final thing I think God wants us to know from this passage. We witness for Jesus by proclaiming him. Acts is all about being a witness for Jesus. Remember chapter one verse eight, be my witnesses in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we do this witnessing thing not just by being an example, not just by saying that I'm a Christian, not even just by saying come to the Alpha course. We do this witnessing thing by proclaiming Christ. You see, this is exactly what Saul does after his conversion. That's how the church multiplies. That's what we see happen all through the book of Acts. And if you're a believer here today, That's how you believed. Someone proclaimed Christ to you, even if it was 10, 20, or 50 years ago. Well, in Acts 9, God calls Paul, Saul, to be a chosen instrument to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. And today, God calls all of his people, the church, as his chosen instruments. To proclaim Jesus to the world. You see, we are his chosen instruments. The church and each and every member who's part of this church. It's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's not a choice, it's not an opt-in or opt-out thing. God has chosen us, he's chosen you to proclaim Jesus. That's why part of our mission statement at Hertford Street is proclaiming Christ. That's how we witness for Jesus. That's how the gospel spreads. That's how people move from death to life in Jesus. Christ being proclaimed by all of God's people in churches, in dining rooms, between the fences, over a cup of coffee, Wherever life takes you is a place to proclaim Christ. This really could be the global church's mission statement, proclaiming Christ. Because if you can sum up the church by one action, we're a proclaiming people. We proclaim Christ and the good news of life in him. You see, God has chosen you, not just to be saved, but to share Jesus, to declare, to proclaim him exactly where you are in your life right now, whether it be in your workplace, your studies, your friendship groups, and your social activities. How and where and to whom has God placed you to proclaim Jesus in your life today? How and where and to whom has God placed you to proclaim Jesus in your life today? So as we finish off our time in Acts chapter 9, and as we close our service today, four things God wants us to know from Acts 9. God is sovereignly and powerfully working for the spread of the gospel. God can save anyone. The church is at the heart of God's mission and we witness for Jesus by proclaiming him. Let's pray that God would use us as his chosen instruments in sharing Jesus, sharing Jesus to a world that is heading towards death and judgment without him, and that unlikely people, just like Saul, just like us, would find life in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on Saul's conversion and the powerful and gracious work of salvation you've worked in his life and the powerful and gracious work of salvation you've worked in our lives, Father, I pray that you'd encourage my brothers and sisters at SDBC today, that you are still sovereignly and powerfully at work in the world and in people's lives. Lord, challenge us to be part of this work. Help us to witness for Jesus by proclaiming his good news, his great news of life and salvation, of sins forgiven in the name of Jesus that we might even be pleasantly surprised at those you say from death to life in his name. Be with us, Lord, as we go from here to the week and to the day ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.